This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollock. Fourth of July coming up. Plenty of festivals and fairs across the state. We'll take you to St. Charles to let you know what they're doing for the Fourth of July. And we'll also have the Missouri Bars program, Is It Legal To?, with some great help on veterans' law and social security disability. Fresh cut flowers, everything you need to know for your garden, MU Extension will be along. A new national report on the well-being of children ranks Missouri 28th in the U.S. Elisa Nelson is with Lisa Hamilton, president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, about the organization's annual Kids Count Data Book. Well, the Annie E. Casey Foundation's annual Kids Count Data Book tracks how children are faring nationally and in every state using 16 indicators related to economic well-being, education, health, and family and community factors. The database book uses this data to then rank the states in each of these domains as well as overall child well-being. And we use the best available government data uh, to um, do the report, and then we publish it each year to provide decision makers and the public with reliable data on child well-being to inform better policy and practice decisions related to them. So this year's data book is uh, based on data from 2021, which is the most recent data we have available, and it gives us a partial picture of how the pandemic affected kids and families. Half of the indicators, eight of them, worsened compared to last year's data book, four stayed the same, and four improved. If you think back to 2021 and what was going on during that time, we know that the labor market was pretty dynamic and many of our children were still learning online, and the data bears out the impact of that. So fewer parents were financially stable or had jobs, and educational achievement was hit really hard during the pandemic. Even so, child poverty remained unchanged. We think that's largely due to the expansion of the child tax credit, which put money in the pockets of parents, and more children had health insurance. And so both of those um, indicate that good policy decisions can help kids and families get through tough times uh, like the pandemic. And they're in Missouri. Um, Missouri was ranked 28th uh, nationally, so um, sort of middle of the pack of how it was doing and um, uh, did well in some areas like economic well-being for families where it was ranked 18th, but struggled more in areas like health care where it was um, ranked 35th. What about, did you take a look at like um, child care in your study whatsoever? I'm curious how Missouri looked there. We did. This year, we decided to shine a spotlight on the nation's child care challenges. And we know that a good child care system is important for lots of reasons. There are 23 million children under the age of five in this country, and uh, more than half of them will end up uh, in child care at some point during their lives. And so a good child care system is because it makes sure that kids themselves get off to a good start in school and have good, healthy, positive experiences to develop. It's important to parents so that they can go to work and support their families. And it's important to our economy so we can have the workers that we need to grow and um, uh, have a thriving economy. But we're having lots of challenges um, providing the kind of strong, accessible, affordable child care system we need. Um, we don't have enough child care workers. Um, that is partially due to the fact that uh, child care workers have some of the lowest wages in the country. 
and that um, certainly impacts women who are the vast majority of healthcare workers in this country, many of them women of color. Um, we have challenges because a lot of the childcare isn't accessible. It's not on public transportation for families that don't have cars. And for rural families, it might be many miles away from where they live. And we've likely all heard conversation about how expensive child care is. The average national cost of child care in 2021 was about $10,600 a year, which is a significant amount for any household, um, but could be up to you know 30% of a single parent's uh, income. And with rising rent and food and gas prices, um, it really creates a dire situation uh, for families. We didn't do a ranking of child care in this data book, but we did provide information about cost uh, for each state. And in Missouri, the cost is a little less for toddlers than the national cost. It's about $8,900 a year. But that still is, as I noted, about 30% of a single parent's income. So uh, an issue that we really want to address if we want to make sure that um, kids are able to get off to a good start, parents can work, and that our um, employers have the workers they need for a strong economy. Lisa Hamilton with the uh, Annie Casey Foundation joins Show Me Today to talk about this year's Kids Count Data Book, uh, talks about the overall well-being of children in America and where Missouri stands. Um, are there any areas, Lisa, that you think make Missouri unique, whether that be good or bad? Well, as I noted, Missouri um, ranked highest around its economic uh, well-being indicators, which is um, very good news. Uh, financial stability is, is a core ingredient to child well-being, making sure that um, families can access stable housing and put food on the table um, and provide resources for their children. So uh, Missouri is, is actually succeeding in that area, and uh, that is that is great news. But we hope that Missouri, like other states, will um, pay attention to this child care issue and take some of the steps um, that can help strengthen the situation, like use um, some of the pandemic recovery funds to create more child care capacity or um, make sure that there's capital for entrepreneurs who want to create or expand child care uh, businesses or um, even make sure that parents have access to child care subsidies that they're available, that they have, um, uh, that they're entitled to um, only one out of six families are getting um, access to those subsidies. So there are lots of things that Missouri can do to to uh, improve its rankings uh, nationally and to address child care challenges there in the state. Now, if our Show Me Today audience wants to see the data book, Lisa, where can they check it out? You can learn um, more about uh, the data book and see your state profile and millions of other data points on kids, families, and communities on our website at www.aecf.org. So it stands for Annie E. Casey Foundation. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about uh, when it comes to Missouri that you think should be mentioned? Just that uh, no state gets everything right, no state gets everything wrong, and Missouri is sort of in the middle of the pack in terms of rankings, but we hope that policymakers will use this data to make even stronger decisions that help children in the state of Missouri thrive. There are lots of opportunities, whether it's in education or health care or 
um, making housing more affordable or jobs more accessible for families that are going to help children do well, which in turn is going to help the state do well. Hey, curious where Missouri ranks in education. Uh, Do you happen to have that factor? I do. Missouri ranks 22nd in education. So again, you know, in the sort of top half of the pack. Uh, And over the uh, last year, um, access to preschool improved, but um, in the three other areas, fourth grade reading, um, eighth grade math proficiency, and high school graduation, the trend was not going in the, the right direction. So um, certainly data for Missouri to pay attention to. All right. want to thank Lisa Hamilton, president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, for joining Show Me Today to talk about the 2023 Kids Count data book. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids opens the door for every Missourian to make a difference in the fight against hunger in our state. All proceeds are dedicating to feeding Missouri's network food banks who work daily to alleviate hunger. Visit MOFarmersCare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. Among children, the numbers are even higher. To ensure Missouri children have the food they need to thrive, Missouri's agricultural community launched Drive to Feed Kids six years ago. Visit MoFarmersCare.com slash drive to learn more and join the efforts. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. And among children, the numbers are even higher. The Drive to Feed Kids Hogs for Hunger program gives Missouri pig farmers and 4-H and FFA swine exhibitors the opportunity to address hunger in their communities by committing pigs locally or at the Missouri State Fair. One pig can feed more than 500 Missourians in need. Learn how you can participate at mofarmerscare.com slash drive. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if a drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. 
This is Show Me Today. St. Charles' annual 4th of July festival is back, and the three-day event will feature a carnival, tons of vendors, a parade, and, of course, fireworks. Special Events and Communications Director for St. Charles, Beth Norville, is with Cameron Connor. So, um, as every year, we're excited to have our Riverfest Festival. Um, we're going to go July 2nd, 3rd, and 4th this year. Um, the festival will run from noon to 10 p.m. each day. Um, we have lots of great food and merchandise vendors set up, live music every day, a children's area full of activities with balloon artists and face painters and um, other things throughout the weekend. Um, we have a full carnival with carnival rides. Um, and then, of course, on the 4th um, that evening, we have our fireworks display. Great. And quick follow-up for you with that. How long have you been helping put together this river fest? So um, myself, this is actually just my second year being involved in river fest, but obviously we've done it uh, for years. I think it started back in the nineties for us here in St. Charles. So um, it's one of our biggest festivals of the year. And um, we look forward to not only people from St. Charles and St. Charles County coming, but people from all over the area coming to join us. Fantastic. Well, in your experience doing it so far, let's see. I'm trying to turn this into a two-parter question. Is there something new that you are bringing to the festival this year? And also, is there something returning that you can't wait to have back? Sure. So one thing that we did focus a little bit on this year is trying to provide a little bit more in our children's area. Um, I mean, obviously, families love to come down for the carnival and the great food and all of that, but we wanted to little additional um, activities for the kids. So we've added, um, again, we've added a face painter every day in the kids' area. We have a magic show that's happening in the afternoon at 3 o'clock each day for the kids. Um, we have the bubble bus come, which everyone loves. Um, and so we really tried to focus just trying to add a little bit more for the families so that when they come down, there's something a little new and a little different. Um, and then, obviously, we always look forward to having our music and all of our great food vendors back. Um, and everybody, I mean, fourth, it wouldn't be Fourth of July without fireworks, right? So we're always very excited about our fireworks show on the 4th. Oh, yeah, fantastic. And you dovetailed right into it. This can't be a Fourth of July celebration unless there are some fireworks. So as far as the actual firework time itself, I'm assuming it's probably starting in the evening sometime. How, how long is it going for? Is there any tricks up your sleeve for anything big coming up? <laughs> sure. So our fireworks will start about 920 on, uh, in the evening on the 4th. And it's usually, you know, about a half hour, 35 minute show. So pretty, um, pretty spectacular, set to some great patriotic music um, that everybody can listen to. Um, and yeah, we're, um, we did every year, we kind of make it um, or look to make it just a little bit bigger than the year before. So, um, so we're excited to see, uh, see what that brings for us. How about for anyone traveling down to St. Charles for this festival? What about parking situations? Are there any sort of travel recommendations that you recommend, whether it's, you know, getting there for a certain time frame or organizing things properly? What about that? Sure. So obviously with any festival like this, parking is always, you know, a question. And um, we don't for this festival. Luckily, we don't have to close any streets or anything like that because our festival is all contained within our park along the river. So people aren't going to run into any roadblocks or road closures. So we just encourage them to 
come down to our historic district. We have plenty of parking lots that line that area. Um, we have the Lewis and Clark Boathouse parking lot in the area that um, can hold quite a few people. And so we just encourage people to come down and, you know, check those first. And then there's always street parking as well. Like I said, it's nice that we don't have to um, implement any road closures or anything for this event. Um, if you're headed down on the 4th for the fireworks, I do encourage you to come down early. Obviously, that's usually our, our largest crowd and people usually start to stream in later that afternoon to get their spot and get situated and enjoy some music and some food beforehand. So I would just encourage people if they want to come down that day to head on down early and, and seek out your spot that you want for those fireworks and just have a good time. Gotcha. And since this is a carnival-style festival, there are always so many great food options, whether it's local vendors coming in or some of those stereotypical carnival foods. Do you have a go-to, either it's a vendor that's returning or just a stereotypical carnival food in general that no matter what carnival you're going to, you know you're getting that? You know, I think uh, I was just actually uh, speaking to a couple of our vendors, finalizing some things, you know, and that funnel cake and that corn dog, you know, you just can't go wrong with that festival. And we were um, we were joking that that just kind of sums up Fourth of July there. So I always look forward to those. And we have some fabulous local vendors that come and make some of the best kettle corn um, I think you'll have anywhere. And we look forward to seeing them every year. And fresh squeezed lemonade um, can't go wrong with on that hot July day. So um, we have some fabulous vendors, lots of barbecue. Um, you know, we have a little bit of everything for um, anybody that comes down from kids to adults to have a wide variety of food options. Oh, that sounds so fantastic. No, I completely agree with you. The funnel cakes and the corn dogs and stuff like that, it's, it's they're, they're staples, you know what I mean? It's almost like you have to get them and th they never disappoint either. They're always piping hot and delicious to say the least. And for anyone who's just now tuning in, this is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with Beth Norville. She is the Special Events and Communications Director for the City of St. Charles. We're talking about Riverfest, which is their 4th of July celebration that'll be going on July 2nd through the 4th. And Beth, one of these, or one thing that I always love to ask is for anyone who's listening to this interview and maybe they lost a little bit of it or they didn't get enough time to catch something, where's a great resource that they can find all of this information? Absolutely. If they head to the City of St. Charles website, which is stcharlescitymo.gov, um, they can't miss it. Right there on the front page, they're going to be able to get to our Riverfest information, and it has the full schedule of events and times for live music and all of the kids' activities we talked about. And so, that's kind of the go-to. They can get everything they need to know right there. All right, fantastic. Beth, is there anything else that I left out that maybe we need to cover about Riverfest? Um, the only other thing I want to mention that I failed to mention is also on the 4th, we do um, have an annual parade um, that everyone loves. So we kind of kick off the day with our 4th of July parade at 10 a.m. Um, and that kind of runs right into the start of the festival. And so Again, great for families. Um, it travels throughout our entire historic district. So it starts and goes through Frenchtown and then ends going all the way down Main Street. Um, and so we encourage people to join us for that, too, on the 4th at 10 a.m. Okay, well, whether it is the fantastic food, the carnival, maybe some of like the kids section, or if it's the parade, or of course the fireworks that are going to be on 4th of July's evening, there are so many reasons to go to St. Charles Riverfest. 
Beth, once again, thank you so much for your time here on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. 
For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. We're going to visit with MU Extension and talk about cut flowers. Uh, everything you need to know. Jennifer Shooter from MU Extension with us. Jennifer, nice to talk with you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Yeah. First question, what is meant by cut flower? Well, cut flower is a flower that is cut to use in bouquets and arrangements. And cut flowers typically have a long stem and sometimes they have a fragrance and sometimes they don't. And their flowers usually last for about 7 to 14 days or even longer. There are some flowers, like some of the lilies, like Alstroemeria lily, also known as a Peruvian lily, that can last up to three weeks. So a cut flower, again, basically is one that is grown for its long stem and its length of life in a vase. How uh, long of a stem are we talking about? I mean, is there a certain length that it needs to be in order to help the uh, flower grow or prosper or, or live once it's cut? Can you extend the life by, by the length of the stem? Well, when you arrange them in a vase, you want your flowers to have a long stem, you know, typically 8 to 12 inches, maybe even a little longer. And we recommend changing the water on a vase of flowers every few days. And so we recommend cutting about an inch off so that the flower can take up more water. So you do want a long stem for that reason because you're going to keep taking off an inch. And so if you have a flower that can last two to three weeks, by the time you get to the end of its life, uh, when it's all turned brown, um, you, you will have taken off a few inches. So that's why you want a nice long stem to have, you know, in a vase uh, of flowers. Is there anything else you can put in the water to uh, lengthen the life of those flowers? There is, and we recommend floral preservative. And you can just go to your local floral shop and buy little packets of floral preservative. I have found uh, that most of your florists will sell a little packet to you. Or if you want to buy five packets or ten packets, they will sell you a packet of floral preservative. Or if you go to a craft store, they often will have a a container, uh, like a jug of floral preservative, and you you know, put like a teaspoon in the water and mix it up. But that's what we re recommend is floral preservative. And there's all those home remedies out there that people may have heard, like 7-Up and a penny and... Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. things, sugar. So, you know, th those may work for a few days, but university research shows that the actual floral preservative is preferred. And that's what we encourage people to use instead of putting in Sprite or a penny or, or whatever remedy they, you know, they come up with. Do you uh, talk to a lot of people that have cut flowers? I mean, do they go crazy with water? Do they use uh, distilled water? Is there a certain type of water they use? Do they like using cold water, room temperature, warm? What's... Yeah, so I grow flowers myself. I grow cut flowers, and I have them incorporated into my vegetable garden. So I have a few rows of cut flowers, gladiolus being one of my favorites, as well as zinnias, and then I have, I have others. But I've incorporated mine into my garden, and I just use water from the tap. I use a my water hose, and cold water comes out, and my flowers thrive. I also work with two local cut flowers in cut flower growers in my area, and one is a U-Pick operation, and they're using uh, drip irrigation, and that, that's, you know, it's there's cold water coming out of that, and that's working well for them, and then 
a, I work with a grower in another county, not too far from where I'm at, and they also use drip irrigation, and they were, uh, I believe, pumping water from a pond. So, you know, we're, you know, pond water is probably cool when they, they use it. So there's no special water you have to use. You know, I've been growing for years. I've been working with these growers for a long time, and, you know, just well water or water from the faucet or the pond seems to be to be fun. The, the, the plants really don't seem all that fussy when it comes to the water. And we're, you know, and these are garden, garden flowers, garden cut flowers. Jennifer Shooter joining us from MU Extension. We're talking about cut flowers. Um, where should you grow them? You, you talk about you, you do them in your garden. Are there other places? Well, you want to grow your cut flowers in a sunny location, whether that be your garden or a raised bed just somewhere in your yard or, you know, just flower beds somewhere. They need full sun, and full sun is about eight hours of sunlight per day. And you really never want to put your flowers near trees or in a shaded location where they may be shaded by your barn or your house because they're just not going to thrive as well as they will in full sun. And most of our cut flowers do like sun. There, there's probably a few out there that prefer a little bit of shade. But for the most part, the flowers that we grow like full sun. So that's really important. Close to a water source is also important. During the hot days of summer, these flowers will need more water. You know, if it is not raining and or you're not getting enough rain, they're going to need supplemental water, either hand watering or through drip irrigation or soaker hoses. So close to a water source is important. You know, there are some varieties that are a little bit drought tolerant. Zinnias tend to have a little bit of drought tolerance. Uh, sunflowers tolerate dry conditions a little better than others, but they all grow better with water. So it's important to be close to a water source. Uh, a two-part question. Uh, are, are perennials and annuals, are they both uh, good for cut flowers? And then uh, inside those two, uh, are there certain flowers that uh, are better than others? Yeah, so there are perennial flowers and annual flowers that are used for cut flowers. And some of the early perennial flowers that we use as cut flowers are peonies. Now, those are really common. A lot of people grow peonies. Also, irises. Now, irises don't last very long, but they're still beautiful, and they are cut and used in vase arrangements. Tulips are a nice cut flower, and they'll last for several days, as will daffodil. So those are some of your early perennial flowers. And then as we get into mid to late spring, we have daisies, particularly like the Shasta daisies. And there's a lot of varieties of lilies that make good cut flowers. And some of the lilies, um, like the Alstroemeria or Peruvian lily and also the Stargazer lily, those can last for a few weeks. So those are good to use as cut flowers. And then roses. You know, I know a lot of people have had issues with roses not being hardy or they have Japanese beetles. So roses have their fair share of problems. But if you have a rose bush with long stems that produces flowers on long stems, those can be used as cut flowers. Now, not all roses produce roses, rose blooms with a long stem. But if anybody had a, a plant with long stems, you know, you could cut those and use those as cut flowers. And then some of the other flowers that we have going into summer um, that – are considered uh, perennials are chrysanthemums uh, and also 
Liatris, uh, which is also known as Blazing Star, that's a purple spike flower, and that's good to use um, in arrangements. Again, these are all the perennials. And then the annual flowers that are very commonly grown as cut flowers are zinnias. They're one of my favorites. They come in a lot of different colors. They're easy to grow. They do show some drought tolerance. So a zinnia is a very common um, cut flower. And then sunflowers. So there's a lot of different kinds of sunflowers out there now in different different colors. It's no longer just your typical yellow. There's lots of different shades of orange and even real like a black looking sunflower. So those are pretty common as um, they're, they're common for also for taking photos. A lot of seniors want to have their senior photos there or even family photos. So that's why some of our cut flower growers will have a patch of sunflowers because people will come in and take photos, and even like wedding photos. There's also one called, called stock. Not everyone's familiar with stock, but that's a good cut flower. Uh, Celosia is also a good cut flower. Snapdragons. Snapdragons are pretty easy to grow, pretty common as a, a cut flower. Uh, Cosmos, dahlias, salvia, uh, gladiolus, which is one of my favorites. Even marigolds can be used as a cut flower. Some of the longer stem, like the African-type marigolds, which are the real big ones, they can be used as a cut flower. There's a plant called gomfrina that produces long stem flowers. And then there's two that growers or gardeners will grow for dried flowers, and that is the status and straw flower. And they have a very dry uh, texture and they dry well and they hold their color. So some people will grow those two flowers to make wreaths or other crafts with. So there's our list of perennial and annual flowers for cut flowers. Yeah, and listen, if you had a hard time uh, jotting those down while Jennifer was talking, you can uh, go back and listen to this segment uh, on our podcast. Just search on Apple for Show Me Today, and you can uh, download this segment. Uh, one final thing, Jennifer, as you talked about the flowers in the spring and in the summer, when's the best time to cut the flowers? What are we looking for in the flower? Morning is the best time. That's Jennifer Shooter from MU Extension. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Many business owners and entrepreneurs today are drowning in unsecured debt and just can't stop incurring more. Business Debtors Anonymous is a 12-step recovery program where you will receive support for doing business and living life without incurring new unsecured debt. Business Debtors Anonymous offers meetings every day where members support one another to help them stop incurring new unsecured debt. You're not alone. Visit helpfordebtors.org. That's helpfordebtors.org. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Some people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. 
Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Welcome back to Show Me Today. Navigating the legal system can be daunting. Missouri Nets Bob Pretty and Farrah Fight from the Missouri Bar Podcast talk to St. Louis attorney Jeff Button. Today's topic, veterans law and social security disability. It's all part of the Missouri Bar's program, Is It Legal To? And more than 8% of Missouri's population is veterans. That's a full point higher than the national average. And many of these veterans are facing issues such as disabilities, homelessness, bankruptcy, foreclosure, child visitation, custody, and support payments. Or problems with drug and alcohol addiction or long-lasting stress disorders stemming from their service. That's right. All of these issues are not only personal matters, but they are also legal matters. So we've invited one of our frequent volunteers at the Missouri Bars Veteran Clinics to join us today to talk about veterans and the law. Jeff Button is a private practice attorney in Creve-Coeur, specializes in veterans law and social security disability, and he's been on the National Organization of Veterans Advocates Board of Directors. So Jeff, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Wanted to touch base first on the history of veterans benefits. We know that benefits for veterans in general go back more than 225 years in this country to benefits for wounded veterans of the American Revolution. Can you give us some historical background on the country honoring our veterans? As you said, veterans' benefits go back to the Revolutionary War era. They became really active after the American Civil War. And ironically, after the American Civil War, there was an act that happened in 1888. And in 1888, Congress decided that no veteran's representative could make more than $10 in representing veterans. Now, Justice Stevens in 1972, looking at the history of veterans law and that fee provision said that $10 was an approximation of about $1,500 in 1888. And what had happened to cause this was there were a lot of people because they could read and fill out the two-page veterans form were taking this outlandish sum, $10. And Congress just thought that was egregious and decided that they were gonna limit benefits because veterans shouldn't have to pay to have representation. That caused these service organizations to come into being. So think the Disabled American Veterans, the American Legion, the Veterans of Foreign Wars. 
and they developed what was called veteran service officers because you couldn't find an attorney, unless you had a friend who was going to do it pro bono for you, to represent you before the Department of Veterans Affairs because they couldn't be paid. And that statute stayed the same for about 100 years. And that's why you didn't see lawyers involved in veterans cases until Congress in 1988, subsequent to the Vietnam War and subsequent to a lot of complaints from Vietnam era veterans about not being able to obtain representation, decided, all right, we're going to let attorneys get involved once we've given the VA one shot at it. So we, you can get a fee after the veteran's gone through the administrative process, and we're going to create a new court. And they created a new court. It was an appellate court, a specialized appellate court that would review veterans' cases. And the VA was one of the last federal agencies to have any kind of appellate review. Prior to 1988, if you were a veteran and you didn't like what the VA did, you had nowhere to go. You had no court to go to. You just had no... No right to appeal. No right to appeal to any court. Wow. You just had to go back to the VA and try again. Well, that kind of sets separate veterans apart separately, it seems to me, and their constitutional rights to access to the courts and, and their constitutional right to, well, their rights. Was, is, that, is that the way of putting it? Yeah. In 2006, the law was further changed. So, as I said, in 1988, you had to go through the entire process. And what became readily apparent to those of us who practiced after that change and to the court and to Congress was that really you needed to get advocates involved at an earlier stage. Getting them involved at the very last stage in appellate review was not fixing anything. The VA was just not changing and they were very hesitant. The VA, by the way, most people don't realize this, it's the second largest federal agency behind the Department of Defense. It is a huge agency, predominantly because of the medical centers and the number of employees that they have there. The Veterans Benefits Administration, which administers the decisions on things like education, vocational rehabilitation, and then also on compensation and pension, they're only about 20% of the actual total agency staff. So only 20%, one in five staff are dedicated to what you just said, more of the administrative rights benefits, where four out of five are dedicated to providing healthcare services. Yes. There's also smaller entities within the VA. So the one that comes to mind is the VA Cemetery Administration. So also managing those cemeteries, that's a small portion of the number of employees. So it isn't exactly 80%. It's less than that. But by far, the largest organization is the Veterans Health Administration that runs the medical centers. How broad is uh, veterans law? How many categories of veterans law are there? The area that I predominantly practice in, which is compensation. Compensation, sometimes people refer to it as service-connected. The statutory term is actually compensation. And then there's also what's called pension. Now, pension, a lot of people associate with the nursing homes, because if you are in need of nursing home care then, and you served during a period of war, you're entitled to a pension. That is normally called non-service-connected. There's a whole host of benefits. So there's education benefits available. During our most recent war, Congress changed the GI Bill to be a little more inclusive and allow for payment of greater benefits for education. Kind of hearkening back to that GI Bill after World War II that allowed a lot of people who might not have had the means to go to college and get a degree. There's also vocational rehabilitation. So if you've been injured in the line of duty on active duty, 
you can get rehabilitated by the VA. There are also survivor's benefits. And that's for survivors of veterans who meet certain criteria. In general, if you've died from a service-connected condition and you're the widow, you can apply for a benefit. Now, is it going to be as lucrative as the veteran's benefit? No. But it's a recognition by Congress that as a thanks of the country for your service, we will make sure that your widow has a benefit if you die of a service-connected condition. Healthcare is an interesting animal. There is what's called the Mission Act, and the Mission Act was passed during the Trump administration. The Mission Act was in response to veterans not being able to get timely health care through the VA Health Administration. The Mission Act was designed to allow veterans to seek private care in a set number of circumstances. And those set number of circumstances were geographic, if you lived more than 75 miles away from a VA health facility, and they were time. So if you couldn't see the specialist, and it varies by specialist what the time limits are, that you then, with the referral from your primary care physician at the VA, could go seek private care out in the community. So the idea behind the law was very good. It was to allow veterans to procure community health services. What's been the reaction? In some quarters, what the reaction, according to this investigation by USA Today, and confirmed anecdotally by people I've talked to, is that the VA is hesitant to send people out because it takes money away from their people and their organization. You can appeal these decisions, and the VA Health Administration is not used to having people appeal anything. They are very unused to having people appeal. When this law was about set to go into enactment, VA had a working team. I happened to be in a group, the National Organization of Veterans Advocates, that had one of its training seminars, and one of the sessions we had was run by a very experienced practitioner who had worked for Paralyzed Veterans of America, and it had the gentleman from VA who was responsible for kind of overseeing the appeal process that VA was implementing with the health administration. The experienced attorney in the room, decades of experience, had done, as I recall, two healthcare cases in her career. That was the experienced person in the room because most of us didn't have any experience asking the healthcare administration to do these things. But I will say this the veterans do have a right to appeal some of these healthcare decisions. They certainly can't appeal a medical diagnosis, a medical conclusion, but they can appeal these healthcare decisions that are being made and how they're able to access care through the VA as a result of the Mission Act. Is there a flowchart for veterans that helps them understand, or at least I'm trying to visualize everything that you've just outlined to us and all the entities within the broader federal organization. Like I, I don't, I feel like I need a roadmap to, <laughs> to really grasp how big this is and where those different trails go. And if you get denied here, how this is the path that you go to appeal. Is there any sort of resource or is that why having an advocate from this, the beginning is so important? So I think having an advocate from the beginning is important. Unfortunately, that law that changed, if you want to pay a private attorney, you do have to still wait for a first initial denial. So you do have to file, and the VA has become uh, much more form-centric. Everything has a form. 
Now, can you find the form on the VA.gov website? I would say maybe if you know what you're looking for. A lot of times, if you get what's called veteran service organizations involved at the initial level, that is one of the key things they help you with, is they get the right form so that you're not denied just because it's not on the right piece of paper. And you're not just on what we affectionately call the gerbil wheel, spinning your wheels and going nowhere. And it's very frustrating. So your question was, I believe, is there a roadmap? The VA has a website, and I find it usable because I've been doing this for 29 years. I'm not sure how usable it is to the ordinary veteran who is trying to file their claim for the first time. I do think having an advocate, whether that be a veteran service officer, whether that be, you know, in this state, we have the University of Missouri at Columbia that has a law clinic that will help with cases. There is uh, an organization called the National Veterans Legal Services Project that also will pair you up with an attorney who can help you pro bono with your case. There's also something called the Pro Bono Consortium that will help you. The ABA has a website devoted to veterans and has a resource that links you to people who are willing to help. The sad fact is the last time I looked in Missouri, you mentioned that 8% of the population is veterans. For every one of me who's trained and an, an accredited attorney and does the compensation and pension piece, there's around 6,000 veterans. And I'm a solo practitioner. I cannot represent 6,000 veterans. So I rely upon these other organizations and these other resources because the veterans really need help. It's, it's very complex. And when we talk about the appeal process and the benefits side, you'll see just how complex it gets. More topics from the Missouri Bar available at MissouriLawyersHelp.org slash Is It Legal To? Show me the day. Show me today.